hey, a couple of things just to add to Travis's announcements. Uh, for the Valentine's Banquet, if you are planning to come, if you would just do me a favor and sign up in the foyer. There's a sign-up sheet because we need numbers. And if you have a heart to maybe help with kids on that night, I've got a couple of people I'm going to be contacting. But if you have a pressing desire to minister to those couples that come, uh, we could use a couple of people to help with uh, child care for that evening. Uh, I don't know that I have been as excited to preach as I am this morning on this text. It is such an uh, incredible text. It is a text that, as I studied this week, affirmed to me, more than anything, the sovereignty of the Lord and just, just the affirmation that this word is trustworthy uh, that we can take from the very beginning of Scripture and know that, that God is sovereignly watching over and that not one little iota, not one little bit will disappear. And that it will be affirmed from the beginning to the end. And, and I am super excited to just kind of walk through some of that this morning with you. So if you have your copy of God's Word, we are in Mark chapter 14. We are wrapping up the final week of Jesus' life in the, in the Gospel of Mark. So Mark chapter 14, once you get there, turn with me. We're going to start at verse 22. We're going to read through verse 31. Once you have that, if you would stand with me as we read Mark chapter 14, starting at verse 22. At verse 22 it says, And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them. And said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup when he had given thanks, and he gave it to them. And they all drank it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written... I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the power of your word, that it speaks life, and in it we can find hope, and we can find eternal salvation. And Father, I pray this morning that as we look at your word, as we consider the, the very moment where you uh, took your disciples aside and you spoke tenderly and sweetly to them and showed them the beauty of your death and what it means to them. Father, I pray this morning that we would be encouraged, we would be challenged, and we would be blessed. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. So Jesus has been in that upper room with his disciples. Uh, if you remember last week, we mentioned one of the most severe statements that ever came from Jesus was given to Judas, that he said it would be better, it would be preferred that he had never been born than what he was going to uh, partake in. And of course, we, we relate that very much so, that it is uh, preferential for somebody to never have been born than to never be born again into the kingdom of God. 
Judas goes out, and we start in the context of what we're going to look at this morning. Uh, the, the, uh, my subtitle, it says, The Institution of the Lord's Supper. We're going to talk about that this morning. Uh, there are a number of things that we want to get through. Uh, Mark gives us the shortest account of all of the Gospels on the Lord's table, the Lord's Supper, uh, many names by which it is called. But I want us to, to, to start by understanding the context of what is going on here. Um, the disciples are celebrating the Passover meal. Jesus would have been celebrating the Passover meal. The Passover uh, is, is of significant importance when we walk through this. Uh, that it's important to understand that Jesus is taking what would be very familiar to them and transforming it into his supper. And so I think it's important you start with context and you bring it all together because to the Jew, they would have understood what was going on. And, and, and really the history of the Passover is from Exodus chapter 12. And it is, uh, it is the celebration of God's redemption of Israel out of slavery and bondage in Egypt. And so in Exodus 12, and I'd encourage you sometime maybe this afternoon, if you have time, to just read through that, that passage in Exodus chapter 12, the description of what um, the, the uh, Passover meal was all about. And it was very different than the way Jesus would have celebrated it, okay? So it's important to understand, I mean, this was so significant. In fact, in Exodus chapter 12, God the Father, in speaking to the nation of Israel through Moses, He tells them, this shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month for your year. The Passover was so important, it was so significant, this was their new calendar, that the Passover would mark the beginning of the year. It was uh, so significant, it was the first of all the feasts. It was commanded as an act, first of all, in, in Exodus 12, it was commanded first as an act of, of deliverance. They did it as a means of deliverance. If you think back to the story of, of how they would, uh, they, if you haven't heard of the story of, of the Passover, what the Jews were to do in order to avoid the death sentence of the destroying angels, that they were to uh, kill a lamb, which there's so much significance in how that process would be done that, that we don't even have time to get into that. But uh, it was first an act of deliverance, then they're told to repeat it annually as a memorial, as an act of memory and an act of memorial, but also what I found so fascinating is it is very prophetic. There's just It's filled with symbolism. You have the lamb, and, and we're told that Jesus is the lamb without blemish. John the Baptist, he, he points to, to uh, Jesus when he first sees him. He says, behold, the lamb that takes away the sins of the world. There's the blood that we know, as we're going to see even today, that, the, that without the shedding of blood, we're told in Hebrews, there is no forgiveness of sin. And that when, when the lamb was killed, what they would have to do is they'd take the, the blood of the lamb and they would put it on their doorposts. And, and, and uh, the idea is that the destroyer, that there is, that there is sin in the world for us, and, and it is so symbolic and so interesting that, that the destroying angel, as it came to kill the firstborn of the 
Egyptians, it would see the blood on the doorposts and it would pass over, hence the name the Passover, it would pass over that house. And it is not ironic, it is not a coincidence that the passing over once the blood was seen is the exact same thing that we have as believers. That when God sees in us the blood of Jesus, the Lamb without blemish and spot, He passes over His judgment. Brothers and sisters, if that doesn't melt your heart, I don't know what will. That is incredible. And it is worth your careful consideration. And there is reason it was commanded as the first of all the feasts, that it was the beginning of the Jewish calendar. And and so keeping that in mind, we turn to our text, and it is no longer celebrated as an act of deliverance. It is an act of remembrance. But Jesus is saying something incredible in this. He is saying it is not a remembrance of deliverance from Egypt anymore. It is a remembrance of deliverance from sin in a new covenant. And what I find amazing is we look at the timing in this as we turn to our text. It says, and as they were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to them. And said, take this is my body. Body. There is so much going on here. See, Jesus would have followed uh, the very process. And if you've ever done a Seder meal, you might know some of the process they, they do. And I'm going to butcher a lot of words this morning, and that's okay. The Haggadah, which is a script, essentially, that you would follow in the, in the process of doing a Passover meal. Jesus would have done this. There is a lot in it. Jesus would have done the very steps, and, and, and it's literally a script. There are sayings that one person would say, and then it would be repeated, or there would be an answer to it. And there are, there's actually four cups of, of wine in the Passover that, that had significance, and each one of them has uh, incredible symbolism and, and significance, and each symbolize a part of a fourfold promise of God that comes from Exodus chapter 6. Exodus chapter 6, uh, 6 and 7, it says, hopefully I've got it here. Say therefore to the people of Israel. Keep in mind that the people of Israel are in bondage to the Egyptians. God speaks to Moses and he tells them, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of Egypt, of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I want you to kind of put this in context. This is like their Independence Day celebration. They would gather together, and they would go through this Haggadah, and and, and they would understand that, that there are four cups symbolizing four fold promise of redemption. Number one, I will bring you out. Number two, I will deliver you from slavery. Number three, I will redeem you. And number four, I will take you to be my people. And they each have their specific part in this observance, okay? So it begins with the cup called the cup of sanctification. So they would start this meal, uh, this process, and, and while we call it a meal, that's a loose term. It's a very long process, and Jesus would have done this. It's very important that you understand Jesus would have done this, and we will pick up in the middle of this story. So they would have started with a cup of, of sanctification. I will bring you out. And, and, and they would oftentimes, after that, they would, they would quote the story, or they would read the story of Exodus 12. 
Then after going through that in a few lines, they would then turn to the, to the second one, which is called the cup of halal or praise. And after reading Psalm 113 and 114, they would then uh, go through a couple of more sayings and questions. And it was meant to teach the children and to teach the adults uh, what this Passover is so significant about because it is essential to the Jewish faith. And after that, they would then enjoy a meal together. They would literally feast. They would eat. Okay? And that is actually right where the story picks up. I want you to have that context. So they've gone through two of the four cups. And, and, and the first cup, the cup of sanctification. The second one, the cup of praise. And they, they have eaten a meal together. And then it tells us in the text, And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to them, and said, Take, this is my body. Verse 22 picks up right after the meal. And Jesus does something. He takes the bread, which is, has a Hebrew word. You're going to love this. It's called afekomen. Afekomen. And what it means is that which comes after, dessert. And this is very much a part of the, the Passover uh, tradition and, and process. So Jesus was just following the tradition. And so the way it works is at the very beginning, before uh, they do a whole lot during that first cup, they would actually break the bread, and they would take the larger piece, and they would set it aside. And then they would do some things with the smaller piece. But what is so significant is they, as they set that aside, that piece would be called the afekomen. They would save it for later. And I want you to understand from the very words of the Haggadah what the afekomen means. The afekomen, from the, from the eyes of the Jew, it represents our liberation from Egyptian exile. That redemption, however, was not a complete one. We are still waiting the final redemption with the coming of Moshach or Messiah. Setting aside or hiding the larger half of the matzah reminds us that the best, the real redemption, one that is still coming, still hidden in the future, is yet to come. With that in mind, listen to what Jesus says. Take, this is my body. What Jesus is saying is, I am the greater redemption. I am the afekomen. I am the one who the greater redemption, the final redemption is coming. Jesus is going through this process. They would have totally understood what he is talking about when he is going through the process of, of uh, uh, the script and the, the, the breaking of bread. This isn't just some random thing where God in the flesh, Jesus just breaks bread and hands it out to him and says, here, take this, eat it. No, they would have understood that, that Jesus was saying, I am the afekomen. Understand, Jesus has declared that he is broken for him. Remember that he had declared in John chapter 6, verses 33 and 35, I am the bread of life that has come down from heaven that you must partake of, that you must eat. It all fits together. There is no randomness in it. Unless someone eats it, he says, they will not have everlasting life. He is literally telling them, I am the great redemption. Then he takes the, fourth, or the, the, the third cup called the cup of redemption. It tells us that he says, and he took the cup, 
And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. There is so much going on here, brothers and sisters. He takes the cup, and he gives it to them, and he declares it is the blood of the new covenant. And I realize in the few of the ESV, it says it doesn't say the word new. Uh, it's, there's a, probably a subscript that says some manuscripts don't include the word new. Uh, that's fine, but the other Gospels have the word new. Hebrews has the word new. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, the new covenant, and that word new is not chronological in time. It is new in nature. It's not that it's just new as in something new time frame wise. It is new in nature that Jesus is transforming and, and changing something. Here we have what we call the Eucharist, that fancy Latin word. It's not just a Catholic word. It means thanksgiving. It's Jesus taking it and giving thanks. And there are all kinds of fun terms to debate if you want to write them down and study them. If you would like your head to explode, you could look up words like transubstantiation, consubstantiation, or substantiation. And your head will literally explode as you begin to understand them and, and try and figure them out. Here for us today, when we look at Jesus and what he is doing, and when we talk about the Lord's table, we are remembering. We are doing it in memory. We're not praying over it, and it literally becomes the body and literally becomes the blood of Jesus. We don't believe that. That's transubstantiation. We don't sit here and say that now after I've prayed over it, suddenly elements of Jesus are with it, consubstantiation, or, or that there are parts and so forth. What we are doing is eating bread. We are eating bread and drinking a cup of, of in, in our case, juice because we believe that we are doing so as a memorial to remember his body broken for us, his blood poured out for us. This is the epicenter of Christianity, that Jesus died for you. That's why we celebrate it. You know, when we talk about uh, the Passover and being the first of the feast, being the first, it points to Jesus. It solely points to Jesus in so many ways that I am baffled that the Jew who would see Jesus and recognize all the prophecies being fulfilled in him would not see that the Passover is pointing to Jesus as the first fruit of him coming and living and dying and being the greater redemption for us. And now we look at this and we celebrate it and we rejoice in it. Because of what he has done for us. And there's some key words I want us to understand in this text. One other thing in regards to this cup and this, this memorial is to understand our requirement. Our requirement is to examine ourselves, to remember his sacrifice in order to examine our lives. First Corinthians tells us that. You know, why do we, why do we approach this? So I shared with my kids this morning as we're driving into church, there, there are two things that should happen when we uh, talk about the Lord's table. It should cause us to rejoice because of what he's done for us, to remember, but it should also cause us to examine our hearts and see if there's sin that we need to deal with. But I do want to talk that there are four key words, new. We already mentioned it's not new in chronological time, but in nature. Second, he says covenant. It's a new covenant. Well, what was the old covenant? Genesis 15 is the beginning. In Genesis 15, this incredible story of Moses, uh, if you, Moses Abraham, if you, you want to find faith in the Old Testament, you read the life of Abraham. 
I'm amazed over and over again when God told him something difficult. Abraham said, okay. You know, if I, if I ask my, my uh, kids to do something, the question that usually follows is, why? When God asks Abraham, there's no why. It's okay. Let's do this. And so God calls Abraham in, in Genesis 15, one of my uh, favorite stories in the Old Testament, especially if you understand the historical significance, God does the very thing that, that the, the, the people around Moses, or Abraham, I keep confusing the two, uh, Abraham would have known and recognized that, that they do this covenant, and essentially the covenant is that God says, I'm going to promise you this, and I'm going to fulfill this, that you are going to be blessed, and that you will bless the nations of the world, and, and here's my promise to you how I'm going to do it. And, and this is kind of graphic story where uh, Abraham gathers up a couple different animals and he's supposed to cut them in half and, and he lays them aside and the blood from the animals roll, uh, flows in. Uh, I should probably make this PG because we have Family Sunday. But the, the, the message is that, that the, the significant visualization here is that when this covenant was made, that there would be a cutting upon these animals and the two parties would agree upon it and then they would pass through in between the animals and the idea is that if they break their covenant, what was done to the animals would be done to them. It's called uh, the cutting of a covenant. If you heard the term, let's cut a deal, it's where it comes from, literally. But what's amazing is that in the story in Genesis 15, you'll find that only God passes through because He knew the inability of man. But the first covenant was based on man's faithfulness to try and keep the law. The beauty of the second covenant, what, what Jesus has done is he's come and he's saying, I'm making a new covenant, new in nature, because I know that man could not keep the law. He says that, that the second covenant is based on God's faithfulness to man through Jesus Christ. And so he says, a new covenant. Third word I want you to understand is poured out. It's shed in a sacrifice like the Passover lamb. Poured out, by the way, implies that it was, it was bountiful. Not just trickled or squeezed out, but it is bountiful. But he goes on, he says, poured out for, on behalf of, vicariously, instead of. This is so significant, brothers and sisters, that what we deserved, Christ experienced. On our behalf, poured out. It was an exchange of cups, and sometimes they would call this these four cups the exchanging of cups. And what is amazing is it's an exchange of cup that Jesus takes the cup of wrath and gives us the cup of deliverance. Jesus took ours and he gave us his in the Garden of Gethsemane. If you remember that story, which we're going to look at, uh, I believe, next week, where Jesus says, If it's possible, Take this cup from me. Because he understood. And what I find amazing as we read about this, it says that Jesus gave it thanks. He gave thanks for the cup that he was about to take. And now he invites us to his table. And all we need to do is examine ourselves.
The story then finally concludes. Jesus says, truly I will say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine. He is continuing on with the Haggadah. And he does not partake of the fourth cup. The cup of acceptance. You know why? Because he's waiting until there is final acceptance in the kingdom of his father to partake with us as a family. This is amazing. He will not drink until he, the final fulfillment of the deliverance takes place when he says, I will take you to be my people. And then to close, just like they would as they go through the Passover meal, the Seder meal, they would close by singing a hymn. And they went out to the Mount of Olives. And I can just imagine and picture the scene. Jesus may be seeing what, what Rick read, Psalm 118, as they crossed the Kidron Valley, which is an incredible scene all in and of itself. Because if you understand the ge- geography there, the Kidron Valley is a little bit lower than the Temple Mount. And the Kidron Valley was a, a, a place that would have been filled with stench. And it was literally black. You know why? Because it was lower than the Temple Mount because all the blood of the sacrifices of the animals would be washed out into the Kidron Valley. And so they sang about the deliverance of God's people as Jesus, the coming lamb to be sacrificed, crossed the Kidron Valley representing the blood of unsuccessful sacrifices. Unbelievable significance going on here. And we're told Jesus looks at his disciples and he says to them, after this moment, this intimate moment, this, this moment that was so significant. In fact, I love how Luke tells us that Jesus says that he had earnestly longed to have this meal with his disciples. He had longed to have it because he wanted to establish and to show them the new covenant which he is be- bestowing upon them. And, and so after that, after this high moment, can you imagine being in the upper room with Jesus in that high moment where Jesus has prayed for his disciples in this tender, affectionate, high priestly prayer, which you can read in John chapter 17. You, 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 the, the high moment as they're singing uh, Psalm, maybe Psalm 118, as they're going out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus looks at them and he says to them, after this moment, you will all fall away. Say, what? Can you imagine, you know, after this exhilarating moment, you know, you, you hear about kids going to church camp and they get all uh, pumped up and they're all excited. They get this emotional high and then all of a sudden, guess what? When you guys get home, you're all going to fall away. Use the term scandalon, which simply means a trap. You're going to all be trapped tonight. And he quotes from Zechariah 13.2. He says, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. And they're confused. John even admits that they didn't understand this. You know, they've gone through all of this experience, this moment in the upper room. And then Jesus comes out and he says, hey, you guys are all going to fall away. You're going to get trapped. And, and, and they didn't understand what Jesus is saying. They didn't know that what he is saying is he's about to be arrested and, and taken from them. And so they're, they're confused. Maybe they're confused because of verse 28. Jesus says, But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. They're probably thinking, hey, after all the events that are going on right now, after this Passover, we're all going to head home. Remember, Galilee is home base for them. 
So they're probably thinking, yeah, okay, whatever, Jesus, we're all going to meet at home. And then Peter speaks up. you got to love Peter. He says to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. There are two things that Mark records for us about this event that Jesus declares that nobody else does. I think it's very interesting that Peter uh, probably would have had great insight as he's probably sharing with Mark who's writing this. Uh, Peter probably had this etched in his brain, seared in there. The pain of what he went through in, in denying Jesus and the sorrow and all of that. And, and I can imagine as he's telling Mark you know, about the story, just the, the vivid details coming back. And, and so there are two things that we, we read from, from Mark's account that we don't see in any of the disciples. He says, um, first of all, we're told that the rooster will crow twice. Did you know that the rooster would crow twice? It crows once at midnight, the Jews would reset their clocks, and then it would crow again just before dawn. And so the idea that Jesus is presenting is this very night, moments from now, you're going to deny me. And we're also told, only here in Mark, that Peter emphatically, a second time, vehemently denies it. Can you imagine Peter? I mean, he puts down the other disciples. Hey, these guys, they're sorry. They're going to fail you, but not me. You can count on me, Jesus. I will be there. I am better than them. Zechariah, you know that prophet you quoted from? He didn't know me. He didn't know my resolve. He didn't know my strength. He didn't know me. And he becomes even more vehement. He says, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And I find it interesting that they all jump in and they all said the same. Incredible stories. And, and at first you might say, well, how are they connected? How does the, the institution, how does the, the wording of the Lord's Supper, when he takes a remembrance of, of the nation of Israel, the epicenter of their belief being brought out of bondage to, to, from Egypt into a nation, uh, and, and, and transforms that into a, a memorial about what he is about to do, the epicenter of Christianity, to take uh, uh, our sin, and to put it upon himself and to die on our behalf and to redeem us from bondage to sin and death? And how is that connected to the denials of Peter and the disciples? Well, I think the application is resounding. Our redemption is all of Christ and none of us. Brothers and sisters, as long as we have self-confidence, we will fail because we must have total dependence on Jesus. These guys thought that they were capable. Yeah, yeah, Jesus, I hear what you're saying, but you don't know me. I promise, how many of us have ever said this? I promise I'm not going to do that again. 
Because we have confidence in our own ability to do something. And, and here's the reality. We have the heart. We have the heart that wants to do what is right over and over again. Paul says in Romans chapter 7, this totally confusing, semi-schizophrenic passage about I know what I want to do and that which I want to do, I do not do. And, and it's this kind of weird, confusing passage. And, and he concludes, he says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right but not the ability to carry it out. Brothers and sisters, how much farther along would we be in our spiritual maturity if we had that mindset? That I know I have the desire to do what is right, but I don't have the ability. Because anytime we think we have the ability, as long as we say you can count on me, we are exactly where Peter and the disciples were the night before Jesus was betrayed. The problem, which I find interesting, Peter says, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. I don't think the problem for most Christians is about dying for Christ. It's living for Christ. Because I think if the decision came to, an, to, to a head, no pun intended, and we were, had a gun to our head and told, deny Christ, I don't think that that's going to be as hard as it is for many of us, for most of us, if not all of us, to not deny Christ in that moment versus walking each and every day living for Christ. So what's the solution? Jesus. The solution is 1 John 1.7. If we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from sin. Not just sin, all sin. And see, the reality is it's not how we walk. See, we have rules and regulations and all these things that we put in place to try and help us with our walk of faith. It's not how we walk. It's where we walk. If we walk in the shadow of the cross, if we walk in fellowship with Jesus, we are constantly... Uh, making an effort to be in fellowship with Him, if we are in the vine, then we will find life and we will find cleansing from sin instead of trying to figure out the, our perfection. I love Oswald Chambers. He said, Christian perfection isn't perfection of performance. Christian perfection isn't perfection of performance, but perfection of relationship. But if you want to grow in your spiritual maturity, it's not about setting forth an additional list of rules that we need to keep. It's about maintaining and growing a deeper relationship with our Savior who cleanses us from all unrighteousness. That as we walk in the light as He is in the light, we are cleansed from all unrighteousness. And to know that when we fail, we can run to Him. Hebrews 4 tells us in an incredible way, we have such a great high priest who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. Therefore, we can run to the throne of grace and there in our time of need, we find grace to help us. And as we fail, we have that freedom to run to him. And by the way, we can note that Peter and those disciples, if we have that kind of confidence, we are in danger, as Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Therefore, let anyone thinks he can stand, take heed lest he fall. 
But Paul goes on, he says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure. We can run to him. That's the beauty of this new covenant. It's not about our our works and the things that we accomplish. It's about a relationship with God through the Son of Jesus coming and living and dying. The good news is that there isn't anything bad enough to keep you out of heaven. The good news is that there isn't anything bad enough to keep you out of heaven. The bad news is there isn't anything good enough that you can do to get into heaven. And the gospel lies somewhere in there. And so when we talk about the Lord's table, we talk about celebrating His death for us on our behalf. We talk about the Afe Komen, the bread of life being the greater redemption. It is worthy of thanks and celebration. They're going to come up and we're going to distribute the elements. So as they do that, I want us to to, to take some time and to consider the the memorial of what Jesus has done for us. And as they distribute them, I want you to hold on to them. Because when we talk about the Lord's table, when we celebrate the Lord's table, it is a moment to look back. To look back at what Jesus has done for us in dying for us and having his body broken and his blood poured out on our behalf. It is a moment to reflect on that. It is to declare until we die as each time we partake that we believe this is what Jesus has done for us in a new covenant and new in nature. But it's not just looking back. It is looking present and saying, okay, as a result of Jesus dying for me, where is my heart? He died for me. Is my heart in the right place? Is there sin in my life that I need to take care of? And so it's looking back, it's looking present, and it is looking forward because this is a dress rehearsal for a day that is coming that we as a family will celebrate with Jesus, our groom, at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And that only takes place because of what He did. So they're going to pass the elements And just take some time to reflect, and then I'll come back up, and we'll partake together. During worship this morning, the Lord laid something on my heart. This is Family Sunday. I want to speak to the kids for just a moment. I want to make sure you understand what we are doing. This and this don't make me better. They never will. Jesus already did that. This is broken. It's not a whole. Because this world was broken when Adam and Eve sinned. And Jesus came and he had to be broken to make things new. To make things right. And the only cure for brokenness was Jesus, because no matter what we do, we can't glue it back together. We can't fix it. Many people try. They try and piece it together with the rules and the regulations, the teachings and the things that they come up with. But it doesn't work. It's always broken. It's always fractured. 
So Jesus came and he said, this is my body. It's whole, but it is now broken for you. And then he took this cup and he said, the reality is that when people sin, the punishment is that somebody has to die. Because I expect perfect obedience. That seems harsh. But when we have a God who is so holy and perfect and just, He can't bear to be around sin. He can't be around anything that might mar or make imperfect what is Him. And so the punishment was that something had to die. And we're told in the Bible that without death, there can't be forgiveness of sins. And so Jesus came and he lived and he says, I don't want you to die. I will die for you. And he said to his disciples, those people he hung out with for three years, he said, this represents my blood that's going to be poured out. It's going to be shed. It's going to come from me so that you don't have to because I love you so much. And I want to make a new relationship with you. That if you believe that, that my body being broken and my blood being poured out is enough, then you can be restored. You can have a whole relationship with God. And so, kids, your parents, they take this and they take this. Not to do something magical but because we love Jesus so much because He died for us. And we celebrate that. And we look forward to a day that is coming when we are going to be gathered together with Jesus. And we are going to take part in a meal of celebration because He has died for us. And so as a family, we take this bread which Jesus declared, it is my body broken for you. And we partake. And so we do in remembrance of Him. And that same night, He took the cup. He said, this is my blood poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. There is not one that cannot be cleansed. Take in remembrance. Father, we thank you. We thank you that Jesus' death is enough. That because you see his blood, much like you saw the blood of the lamb on the doorposts, you pass over judgment. That in us who are in Christ, you see your son. Father, would you cleanse us as you promise in your word, from all unrighteousness. And Father, would you fill our hearts with overwhelming joy at the sacrifice of eternal suffering that you took in those hours upon the cross so that we would not have to. We thank you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.